0: Add FitBod to your workout essentials. Join today to get your personalized workout plan. Get 25% off your subscription or try the app for free at FitBod.me slash Zabe. That's F-I-T-B-O-D dot M-E slash Zabe. Today on the Zabe Cast, the last dance episodes five and six took a deliciously dark turn. Jordan the Degenerate, Jordan the Team Bully, you mean he wasn't perfect john Ronas, golf instructor to the stars he actually has played with michael on the course on more than a few occasions he'll tell us what that was like all that plus a guy hits for the hat trick of arrests in a single day your daily kickstarter of uncensored me is locked and loaded so buckle up and let's go here we go Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, thank you for joining me, Cinco de Mayo. As always, you can reach me via electronic mail. If you'd like to send a more direct, personal, lengthy uh, missive to me, that's wonderful. Zabe at Yahoo.com is how you do it. I got an email titled, I'm Troubled, from a gentleman whose name I shall leave out. He writes to say, I'm troubled, my friend, by your sudden embrace of the Open America movement on Twitter, and on your shows, and on your podcast, and particularly your retweeting of some dangerous thinking. First of all, I've not been retweeting anything that is coronavirus-related. I've been liking those things, and if you follow me, you are, I'm sure, seeing them because this is a feature of Twitter. They shove in front of you things that people like. Now, I began bookmarking things that I wanted to keep bookmarked for future reference when the sorting out of all this is done in the coming weeks, months, and years. And I did it like, well, I want to bookmark it because I really don't want to show my ass on here. And then I said, no, fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and, and like it knowing that likes are not necessarily likes but they're essentially just reminders for me. And if you see them, and if you don't like them, and if you think something that is being said in those tweets is wrong, or dangerous, dangerous thinking. Interesting. Anyway, he goes on to say, I'm a healthy white male, almost exactly one year younger than you. Wait, wait. Why? What is white matter? That's a weird tell right there. That's a weird tell. Why would you say that? Okay. Nevertheless, I saw the wrong side of an ICU three weeks ago. I had no respiratory issues, but my body's response to this virus was to send my heart rate and blood pressure through the roof. I am thankful I did not have a stroke or heart attack. I credit that to the fact I acted quickly when my temperature suddenly jumped to 100.4 and I had the good sense to call a teledoc. Well, good. Ordinarily, I would have done nothing with such a mild fever. Had I not sought medical attention, though, I would have been at home and likely would have stroked out when my BP went to 212 over 180. I understand your frustration with overzealous stay-at-home orders and Karens, but please appreciate the megaphone you have and do not discourage others from seeking help just because someone on the internet says this is like a bad cold. It is not. I never said any such thing. And I never tweeted or retweeted any such thing. You did exactly what you should have done. I almost think this email reads a bit like a bot or a cut and paste or something that is along the lines of, hey, man, don't do that. I'm not doing any of that. If you have a fever, yes. I didn't say, oh, yeah, it's nothing. It's no big deal. Kill this thing on your own. No, no. I've just been pointing out the insane edicts that are going on and the lack of of actual data that makes any sense, which I'll talk about later. But still, i if you at all feel a fever or are sick, get help. Make sure you take professional help. I would argue more people have been scared away from doing what this guy did because of all the other fear mongering like, oh, man, the hospitals could be slammed and I'm afraid I don't want to go there. They might put me on a ventilator and I might never come back. I'm going to stay away. You could argue the opposite. And that's not being done by me. That's done, being done by the fear mongers. If you got a fever, if you have symptoms, go get a test. There. Is that clear enough? Good. We move on. We move on from murder hornets yesterday to toddler snatching motorbike monkeys. What in the living hell is this? Holy crap. Video vertical, of course is of a monkey riding a tiny bicycle. They say it's a bicycle, but I think it's a uh, motorbike of some sort. Is there audio on this? Oh, hey, hey, <laughs> <we go. laughs> hey, 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 mask, mask, mask. Hey!
1: <laughs>
0: Holy shit. This, of course, in Indonesia... And the monkey, the monkey's riding a tiny motorcycle, I think. I don't think it's got pedals on it. And it rides it down an alleyway where a little family is sitting around. And the monkey crashes into the family. There's a toddler who is a little bit bigger than the monkey. Luckily, otherwise, it would have been in trouble. And the monkey grabs the toddler and starts hauling ass with it, dragging the toddler like a rag doll at least 10 feet down the the pavement. <laughs> and it took several seconds for any of the adults sitting right there to jump up and go tell the monkey, get out of here. Holy crap. It's the most, and I'm, we've all seen stunning videos on the internet, right? This is one of the most stunning videos I've seen. Uh, the young boy was traumatized but uninjured apart from scratches on his face. And the child is apparently fine. Uh, Indian Indonesian news reports describe the monkey as being involved in a form of traditional entertainment in which they play music while the monkey performs. (laughs) The monkey was like, fuck this. I'm taking a kid with me. Amazing. Wow. In other news, nurses or fake nurses are stealing shit outside of Seattle. I have no idea what to make of this, but Ring doorbell cams have caught several what looks like nurses or healthcare workers in their uh, teal hospital scrubs, ID badges dangling from their neck. One woman with gloves on coming up to residences and stealing packages. The Kennewick Police Department posted on Facebook photos of the women wearing the scrubs. Uh, They say they do not believe the women are nurses, though, and are asking the public to help identify them. Why do they think they're not nurses? Well, just because it says the nurses we know are fortunate to only give their time lives and take the vitals of their patients and not take their property. Yeah, maybe. Don't discount the possibility that there's some shitty nurses out there. They're like, fuck this, man. I've been working triple shifts, exposing myself to the Rona. And now I've got to go ahead and go home and I'm taking a package with me. I I don't know. I don't know. What would dressing up like a nurse do in terms of your disguise? How come these so called thieving masterminds, ooh, I'm going to dress up like a nurse and I'm going to steal some Amazon packages. Who knows if there's anything good in it I want. Could be curtains, could be uh, you know, pond cleaner. I, I don't know. Could be a television. Yay. Doubtful. What would the ruse do? Would it Allow people to go, ah, oh, it's just a nurse going up to a doorbell. No big deal. It's just your fluid delivery or fluid collection or something like Maybe that's what it is. That they're picking up samples left outside the house. Like, uh, I got to pick up my urine sample. I don't know. I don't know. But um, uh, the F- FBI apparently does not keep nationwide stats on package theft, otherwise known as porch piracy. Arg! I'm a pirate of your porch. of Americans say they've experienced it themselves, though, according to a survey by Xfinity Home. One case in Washington State gained national attention last summer when two women caught on a doorbell cam were caught stealing a package but returned it after learning one contained a gift meant for an autistic boy with a brain tumor. Apparently, it was a replica WWE championship belt for a 5-year-old kid. The two women later returned to the house and tearfully apologized. Yeah, I they should have been thrown in fucking jail is what they should have been. They should have been pistol whipped into the hospital. Oh, I know. That's how, come on, that's cut off. Pistol whip for a package? To, yes. Yes, the pettiness of the crime deserves an outsized punishment. It's just I have such disgust for people that steal shit from porches. They think Well, you know, the person who doesn't get the package, they'll call and they'll say, hey, Amazon, I didn't get my package, and Amazon will probably eat the cost of it, send another. It's a victimless crime. No, get off my motherfucking porch, you greedy assholes, including perhaps real nurses being greedy assholes or thieves with a really bad cover, (laughs) meaning they're trying to look like nurses. A man has been arrested For the hat trick in California. Only in California. In California, the state has put into place something called a zero bail policy. You could call it catch and release. The policy is intended to keep jailhouse populations low due to the coronavirus. On Wednesday, officers responded to a call of a man attempting to break into a vehicle in Glendora in the San Gabriel Valley. That's where they found 24-year-old Dijon Landrum trying to drive away in the stolen vehicle. Shit. Vehicle theft. Grand theft auto. That's pretty serious, right? He was arrested, issued a citation, and released. About an hour after Landrum was released, the department said it received a call about a man taking items from residents' front yards. The cops responded, found Landrum at the scene in possession of the stolen items. They arrested him, issued a citation, and can't tell where this is going? Let him go. Later that night, a car was reported stolen out of a parking lot. Glendora officers tracked the car on the freeway to nearby La Puente, at which time, guess who they found behind the wheel? That's right, Dijon Landrum. Congratulations, the hat trick. Issued a citation and released for the third time that day. For those that believe in a fucking batshit policy like this, how do you defend it exactly? How can, does anyone, well, I know they don't, but in a state like Crazy Fornia, no politician is forced to stand up there and go, yeah, you know what? This is. I know that the, there'll be an occasional guy we let out that ends up with three arrests, including two for grand theft auto, pretty fucking serious in one day. We know that, but you know what? We got to keep the population due low due to coronavirus. Never mind the fact that a lot of these jails being tested for coronavirus have high number of positives and no symptoms. No symptoms, no health issues. I mean, what do you expect? Hey, there's no bail. They still don't have this guy. He's still free. He could still be on a crime spree right now. I mean, holy shit. California, people. Yay, California. And then there's this. University of Virginia is under fire for a new athletic logo. Why? <gasps> Excuse me. Because the saber on the V-saber design has rippled grips. So the grip of the saber is a little squiggly line. And they say that the V-saber design with the squiggly grips is insensitive to the university's history of slavery. According to the Cavalier Daily, the walls of uh, the building were, what building is this? (sighs) Uh, it mimics the design of the serpentine walls found on campus. According to the Cavalier Daily, those walls originally were built to hide working slaves and to muffle the sounds of their daily life. UVA students and professors are not happy with the logo, claiming it disregards history and uses it for promotional branding. Student Lauren Cochran said the walls contribute to the historically non-inclusive environment and are a physical symbol of injustice. She finds it repugnant that the V-Saber design got approved. This is for a handle that just has ripples in it that, that she and others say, that's like the walls, and we're, we had slaves here. I couldn't get into UVA. I wasn't smart enough. Nowadays, you shake your head. Okay, with that, we say hello to our friend Johnny Ronas. Nothing like a little bit of golden earring, Twilight Zone. Your preferred walk-up music, Mister Ronas. Good evening, yes. sir. How you doing tonight?
1: I'm wonderful, Howard. It's kind of fitting, that song, in this uh, environment we're in.
0: Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah, for sure, indeed. (laughs) It's amazing, the golf industry. I mean, I tried to get just any old mangy public course time I could for two on Sunday, first available 5.15 in the evening. it's
1: it's absolutely insane. Now,
0: you would think that golf courses are loving this but not so much because so many golf courses rely upon outing revenue and outings have been decimated and so therefore and food and beverage has been decimated at least it's some kind of revenue coming in but it's not like being fully operational
1: yeah it's better than nothing and it's you know honestly when i see the kind of the same people come out every day it gives them a bit of sanity in this uh crazy crazy world oh yeah right now so no it's good it's, it's nice to be out there and help them out but um yeah, oh. I mean, it is what it is.
0: Yeah. That said, you've been watching every minute of the Jordan documentary, and we're here to talk about it. I said, I'm going to have you on tonight because you actually played golf with Jordan. You said you've played with him multiple times?
1: Yeah, I played with him probably, I don't know, I guess three or four times and kind of scooted out and played a few holes or nine holes. When
0: was this? Where was this? At Woodmont?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was all, I think I played one day uh, four streams with him, um, but uh, yeah, mostly at Woodmont.
0: Okay. And by the way, uh, David Falk, who made an appearance in this, I told people how David Falk was so disliked at, at Woodmont. He wanted to be in so bad, and the membership just wouldn't let him in, even though you'd think he's got all this money and all this clout. And they're like, nope, don't need that asshole. I think he finally got in, though. According to my no, sources. he's
1: in. He's definitely in. And his, uh, I taught his wife Rhonda for a long time, and she's a lovely lady. And well, that's um, good. She was, she ended up being president of the club. You know who really would say, and this was a big thrill for me because I would sit there being a Boston boy coming here, and I'd sit and eat lunch with Red Ayer back every day. And right. he he did not like David Falk. Um, I'm not sure if there were some dealings that he had to deal with him, but well, David Falk like is him.
0: is the bird of prey, as uh, John Thompson called him. Or maybe that was yeah. Kornheiser who called him that, but still, he was so shrewd, and that was played out in the documentary, where he said, "Look, I want Jordan to be like a standalone tennis player or like a golfer, yeah. because he's not well, just he, another basketball player."
1: Yeah, he's he's an incredible agent. There's no question about it. He is he's the best of the best. All
0: right, so you got to play with him a couple of times. What's yeah. it like?
1: Oh, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. The first the first time was a really cool story. Um, you know, I, I grew up. I was a Dr. J fan, even though I was in Boston and um, you know, when Dr. J kind of retired, I became a Jordan fan. So I, and I was a big basketball fan and I played basketball my whole life and after high school and through college and everything else. And um, even up until my back surgery. So I love basketball. And the first day we played, I got a call like eight in the morning and it was maybe like seven in the morning. It was the day after, the Bush Gore election. So it was the hanging chain election. So I assume what is that, nineteen ninety-nine, right? Because the president would have taken over in two thousand. Yeah. That's when Bush took over. Mm. So yeah, it was wild because here we are, no president. And I got a call from a guy that I was teaching named Michael Hillman, and he said, Uh, get to the course, we're playing with Jordan. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. So it was intimidating to say the least because i was a huge huge fan and he was the really the biggest thing on the planet i guess it would be michael jordan and michael jackson were probably the two biggest people on the planet at that time and uh, he was great he was great i i was always taught as a youngster if you know if you have the opportunity to kind of hang out with someone who's famous or whatever you know never ask him for anything and um i held myself back because Boy did I want to.
0: What'd you uh, want to ask him for?
1: Yeah, wanted, what do you need you know, to maybe an you autograph wanna, or, who cares?
0: Who I, gives a shit about an autograph? You played with him. Now I this guess. was this was in the age of no cell phone photographs. Definitely
1: definitely no. Yeah, I was not taking a picture with a cell phone. If I had a flip phone, I had a flip phone, but I wasn't I wasn't taking pictures. So <clears throat> I didn't ask him for anything. And subsequently, each time he came, and he came there a lot, uh, he would kind of come over and and I would take care of him and get him kind of where he needed to go and hide him a little bit. And so I kind of, you know, built up a not a relationship with him. You'd, I'm not you'd, Michael Jordan's friend. You'd, you'd
0: teach him, you'd say, Let me go take you to the back corner tee on the yes, range where exactly. you used to teach. And I would slip back there every now and then and listen to your conversations with the Mrs. Havocams of the world. Right. As you, right. As you try to, that's pretty good. Although, you know, you can still see from across the range, even at 300 yards away. A very tall, athletic black man hitting golf balls. And you might go, hey, wait a minute.
1: And it was very, I mean, I've seen some people in, in public and celebrities that they just have a totally different glow. And Jordan was one of those people that just shined brighter than other people when he showed up. The way he dressed, the way he handled himself. It was really quite a big thrill every time I was around him. There's no question oh, about it.
0: No doubt. So did you and beat first, him? Did you play so him yeah, for so money? First time, yeah. you, so of first course time, you got to play for some money and did he yeah. browbeat you into playing for more than you felt comfortable in with? No,
1: no. I could have given him anything and I didn't. I had the opportunity to play in the past with some some people when I was in Boston, but what happened was it was great. I had someone hand me $500 in cash for a lesson package two days earlier so it was in my wallet and so i said to myself all right let's do the math on this so we played a hundred dollar nassau and twenty dollar birdies
0: hundred dollar nassau is a three way bet front side back side and 18 holes match play one up two up three up etc okay
1: right And so I figured I wouldn't press. So if I was down, you know, I had $500. Pressing is an
0: extra bet whenever you decide to say, let's put another bet in play, and it could be 10 holes in, four holes in, 11, whatever. Here's an extra bet. From this point forward is a a press, meaning we're going to count this going forward. That's a separate bet, uninfluenced by the others. Go ahead.
1: Correct. And so the first time we played, I think, honestly, I think that he asked for what I was going to give him. Like, it's, hey, pro, how many strokes you give me? And – I said, I'll give you, a, I think it was two aside or something. Okay. After that, I never gave him any strokes because I told him, I said, look, you want to beat me straight up. You don't want to beat me with strokes anyway. Oh, you and played, you that, played that game.
0: You played the game yeah. of, you know, who you know, you're Michael Jordan. You, you don't want a yeah. handicap on this. Come on.
1: Exactly. and He gave me that smile and I was like, man, I can't believe I'm playing with Michael Jordan. <laughs> and so, and he beat me actually two the next two times. I what know he, that and I might. What do you so shoot? Anyways, what do
0: you shoot? Roughly speaking.
1: The first time, uh, I won all three of the first bets. I think I shot 73, and he shot, like, 76, 77. And the, um, it was cool because I had won the all three matches, and we were going up 18. And he hit a ball, if you remember Woodmont, he hit a ball in the right trees. So you have to go up over onto the green, and he hit one on the green, and he sunk like an 8-footer, and he gave one of those, like, little Jordan fist pumps. Wow. And that... So he handed me three one hundred dollar bills, and then he said, "Give me my twenty because it was twenty dollar birdies." <laughs>
0: so he had,
1: he had actually that was that was the break even on the birdies. So he had actually won the birdies. So he won twenty bucks. So I want two hundred eighty bucks from him.
0: How did it feel to have the greatest basketball player who ever lived's money in your pocket? It yeah, felt like you know, a million dollars right there.
1: Well, I, I remember coming home and I, t- I told Laura, you know, Laura, my wife, and I said, we're, we're eating on Michael Jordan tonight, right? And it, she is just, she just brings me down to earth immediately. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, he, he'll, 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 he won't remember your name and you'll never see him again. So, wow, um, was, boo!
0: That. Boo, I that was the first that. time you played with him. Okay, but then he yeah. did remember, not your name, but he called you Pro.
1: He called me Pro for years after. In fact, David Falk had a 60th birthday party. It must have been ten years after, and he came on with. I mean, there. I played with Rex Chapman that day. And um, hey, Pro, how are you? So he was always very, very nice to me, and I was always someone who I think he could trust when he came on that campus. I'm sure there were different people at different places he went that he could trust, and those are the people that he would kind of go to first. So again, for me, it was literally like a little kid experience. It was I, really, see, really cool.
0: I would have insisted that he signed the hundred dollars to me and yeah. that we would have posed for several photos, including one of him handing the money over. Okay, let's get this angle here. Cause I'm going right. to make this into a framed piece for my man cave. And then Jordan right. would have said, you fucking tool. I don't ever want to play with you again. And that would have been
1: it. Right. And now let me so based, you know, this the story last night got into the burden of him being, you know, the biggest celebrity on the planet and then the gambling aspect of it. Right. And I will say that that day I happen to have some money on me, but I played with him multiple other times where it was five dollars. It could have been two dollars. As he said in that documentary, he's a competitive junkie. Yeah. And he needs something in the skin in, in the game, some skin in the game. But those days that we played for $5, he wanted to win just as badly. So, you know, again, he has the money. He's playing with guys that have tons of money. Again, right. it doesn't mean anything to them. But he It's the same he, with him
0: flipping quarters. Yeah. And, yeah. And, he's like, and the guy's like, I just want to know that I've got my money in your pocket. That sort of competitiveness. Yeah. I loved how, like, Jordan seems to have no pretense of treating littles like littles that he is very classless in that regard, and that's a good classless, meaning he doesn't treat whoever it is as beneath him. He'll happily give you shit and whatever.
1: He he treated, I can only say for myself, and every time that I came across him and the people that came across him that I witnessed, he treated everyone extremely nicely, and he certainly has, at that point, he had a huge idea of who he was, he knew who he was. He knew that anyone who came into contact with him, it was a big thrill. He knew, I think he knew from me, and we we didn't, you know, talk a ton or anything like that. We talked mainly golf. You know, I wasn't going to ask him about basketball for, the, for any, you know, what would be the sense of that. Um, he asked me about my kids. I asked him about his kids. And, you know, it was just basic talk back and forth. But I really—it was probably—it was certainly one of the biggest thrills of my life to play with him.
0: Was there shit talking? Oh about?
1: yeah, oh yeah. Nice. Oh yeah, a ton of not a, not really on my end. I didn't feel, <laughs> you know, I didn't feel like I was able to do that. Um,
0: did he yeah, try to? He did would, he try to ice you out? Try to psych oh, you out?
1: Zay there was some there was some cool goosebump moments where we'd be on the tee and he would stroll right next to me and like kind of rub shoulders. You know, don't
0: forget, I'm here, be and like,
1: I'm going to kick your
0: ass. <laughs> That's so yeah. funny. That's so yeah. Jordan. So how much do you know about this guy, Slim Buller? Because I cracked up when they showed that cheesy-looking video of him with his golf sweater on, and it's like, who is this fucking ragamuffin? But he won fifty-seven grand off of Jordan somehow. He apparently is a noted golf hustler. What do you know about well, Slim Buller?
1: I know nothing about him. I knew the other guy who wrote Richard Jordan Esquinas? Rules, the yeah, he wrote the uh, book. Yeah, Jordan Rules. That was the, Jordan Rules was the other. Um, his anyways, ga- his gambling addiction
0: strong. and mine, and my cry for help was, I think, the title yeah, of the book. It's like, okay, shut job. up, you
1: ass. The other guy didn't he look a little bit like Carl Weathers from Happy Gilmore? He did
0: look like yeah, he did look like yeah. Happy Carl Weathers. It, uh,
1: a cross between him and um and uh, AJ Green from the Lakers. And so you put those two together and you know what that tells you right there that Jordan didn't care who you were, where you came from. He probably heard this guy's a hustler. I'm going to go kick his ass.
0: So that would be, uh, Mr. Chubbs, right? From happy yeah, Gilmore.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: Just even though facially didn't look like him, it's a black guy with a cardigan sweater on the golf course. So therefore it was, it was he looks like Mr. Chubbs.
1: How is a sweater? How,
0: all right. how, so I've always heard about golf hustlers. Mm-hmm. How do golf hustlers hustle? And is this still a thing?
1: No, it's not a thing. Any Well, you know what? I shouldn't say that. I'm just not in the environment. It's not a private club thing. Um,
0: it's almost it's, like... It's like you, a guy you, who
1: hangs around the green, just like hanging around the pool hall or the ping pong.
0: The putting green? Hall. And then saying, it's, hey, you, yeah. are you going out to play? Like This is usually at public courses maybe. And you, then you
1: got a game.
0: Yeah. And then you get on the first team is like, uh, you know, what do you say? You want to make it interesting and you yeah. sucker guys into betting. And then maybe you start raising the stakes. I've heard of hustlers that purposely wear certain clothes that try to make them look like they're not very good or they're just new to the game or they'll carry their bag backward.
1: Yeah. Like, by you know, the handle, like a suitcase. <laughs> so you know, There's always, there's always going to be that. I'm sure there's a, you know, like a uh, flub chip or, or atrocious putt on the putting green. And then you know, the, when they know someone's walking by, but I think eventually it'll be more of those. We're going to seek this guy out because he's a known hustler. So he's on the putting green. Shoot. I'm going to go play him today because I heard he's taking people's money.
0: How about the shoe deal and how it took mom convincing him to get on the plane to go see Nike?
1: yeah I had actually heard that story in in pretty good detail from well Fox engineered David and, it yeah yeah and um he was he was dead against everybody but adidas he just i'm I'm going adidas how was he an and, adidas
0: guy I love how Fox said Adidas was dysfunctional at the time yeah, which proved to be true because they didn't even put a bid in to get him
1: well, yeah well, they were dysfunctional, but Nike didn't exist.
0: Well, they were a running shoe company essentially. And that picture, the picture of Nike shoes that are sitting on the rack, I was like, ah, yes, that is what Nike was back in 1984. I now remember it.
1: Yeah, it was. And then it was the, uh, remember the Nike Cortez, which you would sprain your ankle immediately. In that thing, that had I that like layered sole. Don't remember was, it. was, <laughs> oh my goodness. That the thing, Nike sprayed,
0: Cortez shoe?
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah, it had like a cushion foam with white, then like the red of the color of the shoe and then white again. It was, it was an ankle sprainer like I've never seen. But oh, yeah,
0: oh, there it is. Shit. I yeah. had one of
1: those. Oh my goodness. Yes,
0: exactly. Wow.
1: <laughs> that thing was insane. So, you know, you wore it. It was a low top and you wore it. And you'd play basketball in the driveway, and it, it, immediately someone would sprain their ankle. I With remember. No whatsoever.
0: I remember getting those Nike Cortez's at a Foot Locker in Tyson's Corner, or at yeah. Mort's Bootery, the shoe store in downtown McLean. The same shoe store Where? I played for in Little League, Mort's Bootery. That's
1: my brother played for Mort's. Yep.
0: And uh, and ad- in addition to the leather shoes, you would get leather softener.
1: Yes. <laughs> And you would apply
0: it periodically, and your mom would bitch and moan if you ran through the mud with it or Um, if you mowed the lawn in it. It's like,
1: those are your good Nikes. Yeah, these were the whitest shoes I ever had. But, you know, again, I wasn't wearing them because one of them was off my foot because it was taped because I'd sprained my ankle from (laughs) just walking to school. (laughs) It was a joke. So I played basketball growing up for the uh, Converse All-Star, and that was with with, uh, Bird and Magic. And then Nike got into it, but I was shoot. I was in college, pretty much at that point. It's funny
0: that they said they were hoping to sell like three million dollars worth of shoes. They sold 126 or whatever yeah. insane number there was, and all Nike had to do was outbid Converse by about 150 grand. That they yeah,
1: they said they gave 250 thousand.
0: Unbelievable, and, they said, we're and Adidas. Them, what? And they're like Adidas really liked them, but they said they couldn't make a shoe work. And I'm like, well, then you don't really like him then. Right. You're a fucking shoe right. company. Sign Michael Jordan, tell your shoe nerds to design a basketball shoe, and go with it, you dumb fucks.
1: Now, a great comment that Jordan made during that was, look, all my endorsements were predicated on the fact that I worked so hard on my game that I was a great player. Yes. He goes, no one would have been signing me if I was scoring three points and getting one rebound.
0: Nothing on charm, nothing on lifestyle, no. nothing on image, nothing on what yeah. he does off the court, nothing on his Instagram. Of course, didn't exist back then, but you're right. The only thing that made it work and made it go was the fact when he went out there, he fucking delivered like a uh, it was, maniac.
1: And, it was unbelievable to yeah. watch, and I'm having my kids watch it because I'm just like, guys, this is this is beyond human being stuff here as far as motivation
0: goes. Oh, absolutely. Motiv- motivation, focus, everything else. What about uh and and so that deal turned out to be fantastic. I would assume yeah. that Falk renegotiated at the very first chance he could because to only get paid 250 grand on 136 million dollars of sales, that's ridiculous. Yeah. But you know, Nike did a similar thing with Tiger Remember when Tiger was yep. first coming out on tour and Nike swooped in before he made his first professional drive and yep. said, here's a whole ton of money. And it seemed like a lot. It was like $80 million, I want to say. And it yep. was one of the greatest deals ever made to lock up Tiger yep. Woods, even though Nike basically had no golf division at the time. Yeah.
1: It was a hello world. Remember that? Yes, exactly. When Tiger came out and said, hello world. And that was the... Uh, the whole advertising thing that they, they went with that. And, and Nike, you got to give it to Nike. Not only, you know, I, I'll actually tell you a story about the shoe here in a second, but they're a marketing juggernaut. Right. I mean, they, they obviously they make some good products. There's no question about it, but they are a marketing juggernaut. So they latched on to these guys and then they were smart, obviously to take someone who they knew or thought would be the greatest of transcender really of their sports and, and, and then they marketed that to a point where it was, it, it, you know, the Tiger and the Jordan ads have been both funny and heartbreaking, heartwarming, whatever we want to call it, and get to the point to the point where you just want to run out and buy the shoes. There was there was a line the other day for the new Air Jordans. In I saw this that social distancing thing.
0: Yeah, I know. I saw people. So, were fr- people were freaking out about it. I'm like, okay, you guys got to get, get over this. But yeah,
1: getting back to the shoes, I I taught Curtis Polku if you. See the the yes um, he's Kravitz. one of the
0: one of the producers in this
1: yeah okay. so Curtis was kind of Jordan's right hand man and I taught him for a few years and he was a really nice guy too and <laughs> one day he gave me a pair he, he showed up he goes I was bringing him to his car and he said you want a pair of sneakers and I was like sure so he got me a pair of sneakers this was uh, shoot now I'm probably thirty something years old at, at some point I'm still playing basketball I go out that night I got these new Air Jordans they're not out yet they came from wherever. They were the worst shoes I've ever worn in my entire life. I got <laughs> shin splints immediately. So I think they went from being basketball shoes that they tried to ergonomically, correctly make to fashion statements. I think it was hilarious. It was a little bit.
0: I think it was amazing Jordan got an old pair of the vintage Air Jordans. Yeah. Yeah. And he played in them and had forty plus points, and they're like, my feet were torn up. I just wish yeah. they had footage. Not that I don't believe Jordan, but I wanted to see the feet afterwards. I was like, oh, they're gonna show the feet, aren't they? Give me one big ass blister and a blood stain on his sock. Didn't give yeah. it to he, us.
1: Yeah, he did though in that post game interview say, my feet are killing. Me. Yeah, yeah, exactly,
0: yeah. exactly. Because shoes have come a long way. Um, yeah. What uh, What else did you like about the doc? Did you like? Oh, I loved when he was like. We got a tea time, let's go. And he was so pissed at Scotty for even thinking about giving a five-second interview to anyone in the media to the point where he's blaring the horn of the bus to interrupt the interview. God, was that great.
1: It was my favorite comedy part of that documentary, which went to a darker tone in episode six. But him behind the wheel, he was a little kid behind that bus with that $100 billion smile. And he's and like, I can like, drive
0: this thing. Watch. Yeah. But he was like, you could see the anger in his face. Like, damn it. I don't want to miss my tea time. I'm sick of yeah. this. Let's go. And Scotty's yeah. trying to be accommodating, trying to be a pro. And Jordan's yeah. like having none of it. And then he gets to the golf course and he is so happy.
1: My, I, I will say though, my favorite, I was riveted when they were doing the dream team footage. And they oh, talked about that one practice and, and they got on the bus and no one was talking And we've. You know, on a way, way lower scale, we've been in that situation with our friends that you you, play basketball and then you get in the car and for a couple minutes you're kind of still pissed off at someone and then someone says something, right? And when Magic said, I guess we pissed them off and then they got that lighter tone again, I can just imagine that happening and that was, to me, that was riveting.
0: Yeah. By the way, um, my man uh, Michael Hall, who uh, sells fertilizer in Madison, Ohio. Big fan of mine uh, and listens to the Milwaukee show. I asked the question this morning on the Milwaukee show. I go, boy, I'd love to know the box score for Jordan because I don't think I remember seeing him miss a shot. I want to know the box score for the documentary. And I also want to know how many cigars did he smoke in the documentary? And and so, in other words, uh, Mike, because he's currently not allowed to travel to sell for his job. Went through and counted it all. Do you know what Jordan is shooting in the documentary so far through six episodes?
1: I'd say he's probably at about 96%.
0: 92%. With a a bunch of the misses coming and just shoot around or practice. But he breaks it down, college games, pro games, Olympics, Olympics practice, uh, pro practice, etc. He's shooting 92%, 17 of 18 from three. He uh, has... Made only 6 out of 10 free throws, which is interesting. He has 17 assists, 9 blocks, 11 steals, 12 cigars, and 3 beers.
1: (laughs) That is great. So cigar smoking is fascinating to me.
0: Oh, I mean, and I guess, look, I don't smoke cigars, uh, although I know somebody who does on the side. I yep. guess I guess you don't really inhale, so it didn't affect his conditioning. It doesn't affect your lungs. It can't be yeah. good for you, though, can it?
1: I don't know. I mean, I've, I, if if I've inhaled a cigar it was completely by accident, you pay for it. I mean, mm. it is it's no fun. But I still was amazed that he's just well. Well, second of all, he's in a hotel room. Well,
0: he's yeah, no up. rules don't <laughs> right. Do you have sprinklers. Yeah, he <laughs> doesn't care. Rules don't apply to him. Come on, man. Oh God. He just but loved a, his it's cigars. it's such
1: a great, I mean, we're at the age where we lived it. And so each episode is just so, it brings back the memories, but it's, I'm learning something even oh, yeah. more oh, yeah. from what I knew. And I thought I knew a lot about that, that basketball age. And it is, it really is awesome. And we really needed it, this, with no yeah. sports going on. Yeah.
0: Do you want to hear my chipping update, Pro? Yes, yes, I do. It was darkest before the dawn as I had spent every day for four weeks, maybe hour at the chipping green at the local club and just still having problems with skulls and chubs and slapping it. I had tried a million different things. Your tips showed very good promise for a certain period of time. And then it declined. I mean, everything I tried, you know, eyes closed, one handed it, nothing was too crazy not to try. Right. I think I've gotten to the point where I realize – and it's a weird sort of dynamic where I'm thinking about releasing – I'm thinking about releasing my hands on my right thigh instead of at the ball. And I think it's not so much that I've got my hands further back when I'm beginning my natural release motion. I think what it has done is concentrated my thinking and my vision on the shaft of the club in relation to my right thigh – And so, therefore, when the impact occurs, it's natural, unflinching, and without tension, which means I really am trying to deprogram a yip short circuit that has developed in my chipping. Do you know what what I mean mean? when I say Uh, that this – don't you think some tips in golf, especially with short game putting and chipping, all they – the reason they work briefly is because they short circuit your yip impulse, and your obsession with making precise contact, and the skin, sca- and the fear of a skull or a chub.
1: Yeah, there's no question. They just—it's just like turning the TV on and off, or the computer on and off. You know, to see if a result is a little different. And, you know, that's an interesting payment because you probably are also making the right side go forward through the shot uh, because you're trying to kind of see the shoes to advance. Maybe, but, a, but maybe a little bit. Just-
0: but I tell you this, pro—if I can call you pro.
1: Oh, yes, you can. If Jordan
0: can call you pro, I can call you pro? Yes,
1: you can.
0: I do want to show it to you just because when I'm a little bit warmed up and when I've got it dialed in, my chipping is exquisite. The contact is exquisite. And the ability to hit it high, to hit it low, to nip it, to let it run is great, but has not been tried even once under any moderate amount of pressure. So that will be the next step. What's the
1: pressure? I played with Ronnie today. I got to give a shout out to Ronnie Thomas who invited me down to this place called Something Creek, Spring Creek, down in Charlottesville.
0: Oh, Spring it Creek was is unbelievable.
1: Legit. It was beautiful. We played with two guys. One guy named J.R. Hadley, He was awesome. He's going to download your podcast. When'd you and go? His buddy named Kyle. We just I'm driving home right now.
0: You were there today.
1: We were there today. That's what I'm driving home from. Fuck you.
0: Are you kidding yeah. me? And you didn't invite
1: no. me. We're, we're, I want to play
0: work. I want to play Spring Creek on my way to Pinehurst next Thursday so you're going to give me a good number to make that happen. God damn it. Okay,
1: well, on. Best the hidden, on there. Best it was awesome. Best hidden best
0: unbelievable course. Best hidden gem in all of Virginia.
1: Oh, incredible.
0: Yeah. All incredible. Right. So All right, pro. Good to talk to you as always. Thank you, pal.
1: Thank you, sir. See you, buddy.
0: John Ronis, Director of Instruction at the Ronas Academy. At River Creek Club in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the D.C. area, Virginia area, you want a lesson, Johnny is the man. Look him up. Ronis Academy, R-O-N-I-S dot com. All right, let me end on this real quick. The more data we get in on this coronavirus, the more impossible it is to actually make heads or tails of it. It's just insane. Over the weekend, the CDC put out a chart that purported to show that the coronavirus virus deaths to date were almost half of what we had already been told by other entities and or accounting, that it had knocked it down to like 37,000. I didn't run with it because I'm like, well, I don't know, like there's lag in the reporting. Uh, there's differences state by state. Uh, there's the whole thing about did you die of it or did you die with it? There's a bonus in terms of money to hospitals for coronavirus patients, which I think is dangerous if you want an actual count. Anyway, um, Virginia is apparently going to start counting positive cases for the same person testing positive more than once. Which seems completely fucked up, but maybe that's how everyone else is counting the cases. So in other words, one person catches it, they test positive, they try him again in two weeks, he's still positive, and then a third time, another week after that and he's finally negative, that's two, two positive tests, and you put that on the pile. I, there's no way to really get heads or tails of it now, which is you know frustrating if you want to try to look at it and kind of get an angle on All right, what does this look like? The other thing that dawned on me was, all right, so these states want to open up based on declining number of positive tests or a number of other sort of characteristics. Who are we testing and where are we testing? Because if you think about it, if you test the following places, you're going to get a lot of fish. You're going to get a lot of positives. Prisons, homeless shelters, nursing homes, healthcare workers policemen, firemen, home uh, pork plants, you name it. That's where the fish are. If you start testing out in the community, you're probably not going to get very many. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't test all these places. We should, but high numbers in those places for a lot of asymptomatic people, like these prisons, they're testing all the prisoners just to see what the spread is, and they're finding out, oh, holy shit, there's a lot of people in here that are positive, but they had no symptoms. Anyway, it's... And, you know, it's a data mess is what it is. Even the data guys that are really smart, Nate Silver of uh, five thirty eight, the uh, election guy, the numbers guy that used to do a blog for ESPN, even he has been saying it. it the data, you, you, we just can't make sense of it because there's so many different ways it's been reported. And, of course, there's now new models, new models from the good old IHME that haven't been right yet. But they're predicting a huge spike in cases once everybody starts moving around. Who could die, who will die, et cetera, et cetera. Look, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters are hospitalizations and ICU capacity. That's it. I mean, it matters to you or me if you or I catch it and die or get very sick or someone we love does, but there's no way to prevent it. And you could say, well, we need to flatten the curve further. We need to reduce the caseload to basically nothing. That's crazy. We can't afford to do that. you got to look at the whole picture. The economics are, are staggering. And, of course, it's all falling apart now anyway because people are finally saying, oh, enough of this. California is even cracking. Virginia has begun to relent. Mask laws around the country are being rescinded because they're proving to be a recipe for violence. Poor Oklahoma store clerks were getting harassed, even threatened at gunpoint for telling people out, uh, well, sir, you need a mask to come in here. Same thing for Ohio. Uh, same thing, I forget, somewhere else said, yeah, we really, the whole making you wear a mask, that's just not going to end up very well. And then there's just plain insanity. Like in California, they released something like seven sexual predators from one jail. Four of them have already been (laughs) re-arrested. Already. This in addition to the guy that hit for the cycle on arrests. They let homeless people sleep, piss, shit, in subway cars in New York City while they arrest paddleboarders in California on the other side of the country. And you could say, but those are two different places and two different local governments. And I know, but it's still all America. That's what pisses people off. And there was, of course, way more outrage in some quarters over Mike Pence not wearing a mask when he visited a hospital, the Mayo Clinic, uh, even though it was quote-unquote required and he was like, I tested negative, I don't want to wear a mask. More outrage over that than Cuomo forcing nursing homes to take COVID patients and then seeding and essentially killing hundreds of people. It's just crazy. And then there's people who are supposedly smart like Mark Cuban who tweeted something like, I can't believe our government can't employ there's some 30 million people currently un, unemployed or underemployed to become contact tracers. I thought Mark Mark Cuban's a billionaire. He owns the Mavericks. He seems smart to me. Does he really believe this or does he not understand? It doesn't matter if the government hires people to be contact tracers. This would be like, why don't we have the government hire 30 million people? We got 30 million unemployed. Let's have them hire 15 million to dig s- s- holes in the beach, in the sand, and then 30, $15 million more to fill the holes in. Problem solved. Cuban knows, right, doesn't he, that the government doesn't have their own money. They just take it from people. And so if you hire $30 million to be contract tracers, that doesn't solve any. I don't know, man. I thought Cuban was smart. I think maybe it's because it's just a virtue flex. Maybe he understands that. Maybe he understands a lot of people don't want to be contact tracers a lot of people understand there's no fucking way we're contact tracing with a hundred with probably a hundred million cases already in the u.s if there's a million documented not a hundred let's say there's 10 million cases right now in the u.s 10 times the number of confirmed cases how are you get a fucking contact trace and track a hundred or 50 or, or 10 million ca- it's just not possible Jackie McMullen on ESPN asked if people will resent NBA players for getting a test if the league starts up again when they can't get a test. And I said, oh, for fuck's sake, lady, keep up. There's no shortage of tests. In Wisconsin, Governor Evers is begging people to get tests, even if they show mild symptoms, because they're not at capacity. Same thing in Jacksonville, Florida. Come by. No no doctor's uh, recommendation required. No symptoms, drive up, no weight, no takers. Same thing for California. L.A. said the same thing. There's no shortage of tests. And Jack, well, regular people will resent that. They can't get a test. All I know is the Rona killed this year's NFL International money grab games, and for that, that's a good thing. That's the one good thing out of this. Four games in London, two in Mexico. Sorry. See you later. That'll be it for me today. Thank you for listening. Uh, As always, remember to download the Zabecast app if you want. Subscribe to Fridays. I'm about to flip the switch tonight to the Red Circle hosting, and so I will explain fully on subsequent podcasts how to set up your RSS feed so you get these podcasts sucked directly into the player of your choice. Thanks for listening. Rate and review. Please the algorithm. Tell a friend who likes good podcasts. Have a great Tuesday, and we will see you tomorrow.